Well, good evening. Merry Christmas. It's Christmas time. I love Christmas. And today I want to tell you something you probably already know, and that is during the Christmas season, you'll see this major theme of family, right? Family comes over to your house and eats dinner. Family gets together, maybe pass out presents, pass out gifts. In fact, it's a common theme during the holidays that we be with family. We get together with family. You'll hear it in Christmas songs. You'll see it in Christmas commercials. You'll see it in Hallmark Lifetime Christmas movies. It's all about, I'll be home for Christmas, baby, or, or home for the holidays, you know? The army man comes home, and he bakes that cup of coffee or makes that cup of coffee, you know, and mom comes down and says, oh, the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup, and you here, home for Christmas. So Christmas is all about family, and that's warm and touching, to be, for, to be sure, but there's also a flip side to that, a dark side, if you will, <laughs> probably more so true for most of us, and that is family can be, well, it's a mess. Families can be really, really messy. In fact, I've come to the conclusion in my life that every single family, every family is messed up. People are messed up. And, and, and part of the reason why is because we all have baggage. We all have baggage. We all have embarrassing moments or, or um, uh, regrets or disappointments. And when we get together with our family, they know about all of our baggage, don't they? Sometimes they like to, sometimes they like to help you unpack it. <laughs> or, or if they don't help you unpack it, maybe you've got a kind of family who doesn't talk about it. They don't unpack it at all. They just put it in the closet. We're not going to talk about that. We don't talk about her, you know. <laughs> we, don't, we, don't, we don't say those things here. Uh, maybe, maybe you have a family that likes to talk about the baggage. Maybe you have a family that doesn't talk about the baggage. Maybe you have a family that you can't even get through Christmas dinner without a fist fight. Anyone got a family like that? Uh, used to? Uh, where where you're, you're at dinner and you just know it every year. This is going to end bad. <laughs> Uncle Rick's going to get drunk and he's going to say the most inappropriate thing he can think of. And he does every time. Or Aunt Sheila, you know, she's always dropping some bomb on us. Uh, excuse me, everyone, I just want you to know I'm pregnant and I'm moving to Burundi. <laughs> Pass the peace, please. She, oh, anyone got family members like that? Oh, every year you know they're going to drop some news or every year they're going to like say something inappropriate because families are just messed up. And it's very interesting. Families are interesting. And what's even more interesting is that God uses the language of family to talk about us, to communicate us that he's our father and we're his children. And in fact, if you've grown up in the church, you know that the New Testament teaches us to call one another in the church brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we are a family. And how many of you know we're messed up? <laughs> and if you've been in the church for any amount of time at all, you know that family is messed up. <laughs> you can say things you don't mean or say things you wish you hadn't said or do things you wish no one saw you do. But you know what? They all know it. And some churches like to unpack that laundry for you and other churches like to sweeping under the rug. But the church is family. And that's, that's very, very important. It's an instant, and actually, it's why we talk about community so much here at Missy O'Day. We talk about being a community and having real and authentic community. And really what we're talking about is family. We want to have a real, intimate, authentic family. And, and particularly with our missional communities that meet during the week, that is family. We gather together and we eat food like families eat food, and we laugh together and we celebrate together. But then after a while, we, we turn the kids into the basement and we, 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 we talk. We, we, we share intimate things. We, we're raw. We're vulnerable. We're real. We pray for one another. We encourage one another. We talk. See, we don't want to be one of those families that don't talk about it. 
We also don't want to be one of those families that get in fistfights either. <laughs> Hopefully we're in a family that knows when to unpack the luggage when in the appropriate time is to unpack your dirty laundry. <laughs> and this is so very, very important. Think of it. If you're in a missional community and you're living life together, I think that's what the Bible is calling the church to do, to be a family, brothers and sisters in Christ, living life together. Church is not, can I just repeat myself, it is not about coming to a place listening to a sermon, singing a few songs, and then going home. It's, that's not church. That is the definition of church in our country. It's been that way for over 100 years, but that is not what church is. It's, that's not family. How many of you know you can go to church and listen to a sermon and sing a few songs and leave but not say a word to anybody else and not actually input in any way into that family? And church is not a place where you can go so that you can get fed and then you can leave. That's called a restaurant. And church is not a place where you can send your kids so they have a great program and those kids can learn the Bible and they can learn how to make right choices and then you can be happy. That's not what church is. Church is a family living life together. It's raw. It's real. It's messy, just like your family. So I'd like to just encourage you, if you're not in a community group or a missional community group now, to commit to one. Commit your family to one next year. Can I just tell you how authentic and real your family will be if you're in that missional community? And what happens if a group of messed up individuals are in a family together, they meet every Tuesday night at someone's house in that neighborhood, loving each other and encouraging one another, what happens to their neighborhood? Their neighborhood begins to see the gospel at work with messed up individuals loving each other. Hey, we don't have all the answers. We just know we're gonna do life together and encourage one another in the process. That's, what, that's why the Bible is all big about family. Not only that, but Matthew is going to open up his gospel talking about family. You know that the Old Testament ends in Malachi, and then the New Testament begins in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew says, here's the genealogy. Here's the family tree of Jesus. This is family's important. And Matthew's going to show us the family tree of Jesus. And what we're going to see tonight is that Jesus has got a messed up family just like you and me. There's knots in Jesus' family tree. There's a big embarrassing, unbelievable knots in Jesus's family tree. In fact, they're so bad, you would think that Matthew wouldn't put them in there. You know, like some people are so horrible, you would think that he would try to, hey, we're not going to talk about him. <laughs> we're not going to talk about her. But instead of sweeping under the rug, Matthew actually seems to highlight it. He seems to actually point directly to it when he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to list some of these people, but he chooses to list them rather than other people because he's trying to show us something. And so today we're going to look at Jesus' family tree. We're going to read a part of Scripture that you normally would just skip right over. The beginning. <laughs> let, let, me just, let, me just say, let me just read a little bit of it for you so you can see what I mean. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah was the father of... How many of you are already starting to check out? <laughs> And this is just one slide. There's two slides. There's three slides. This is long. This is 18 verses long. And it's just father of, father of, father of, father of, mother of. And what I want to do tonight is I just want to take a couple of these characters, the ones that I've highlighted in Missio de Green there, and just kind of unpack some of their life and see how naughty, or not, it is knots, not naughty, but how knots, maybe naughty, are in Jesus' family tree. So let's look at it. The first thing that Matthew says is, is that he's the son of David. Matthew's primary purpose, he wants us to know that Jesus is from the lineage of King David. So Jesus is a king. Jesus is the king. He's the king that fulfills the promise that God made to David, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. 
And then the very next thing he does, he goes all the way back to Abraham. That's pretty far back. That's all the way back to Genesis. Matt, you know, we have Adam and Eve, we have a few other people, and then we have Abraham. Okay, so he goes all the way back to Abraham. God, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Let me just say a little bit about Abraham. Abraham is a towering figure in the Bible. Um, he's father Abraham. He's known as the father of our faith. In fact, his name, Abraham, literally means the father of a multitude. He's spoken out throughout the Bible as a kind of a paradigm of our faith. Abraham's faith is shown in the New Testament as the kind of faith that we need to have. So Abraham, the Bible says, had faith, and it was accredited to him as salvation. So because he trusted God, because he believed in God, he got to be saved. He got salvation. And so the New Testament says, just like Abraham, we trust God. We don't know where God's leading us. We just trust him, and then it will be accredited to us as salvation. Raise your hand if you ever sang a song when you're when you're in school. Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons. I swear, I think they taught. They, it's the longest song in the world. It had all these hand motions, and you spin around, and you jump up and down, and you sit down. And I think they just made us sing that in vacation Bible school to wear us out. Now that I'm an adult, I know what they were doing. They're just trying to wear us out. But do it again. Do it again. Do it again. He's the father of a multitude. But can I just tell you that before he became the father of our faith, he was a pagan. He was a Babylonian. He was living in some place called Ur, U-R, in Babylonia. And he wasn't seeking after God. He was a pagan worshiping the pagan gods. Commentators believe he was a moon worshiper. He wasn't seeking after God, but God was seeking after him. See, the Bible is about a God who's on a mission to reach people who are far from him. So he pursued Abraham and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. All you have to do is trust me and leave your home to a place that I'll tell you. So Abraham trusted him. He got his family together, and they went on this long journey. So here we got a pagan moon worshiper being led by God somewhere. And even though Abraham teaches us a lot about faith, can I tell you that a lot of times in the Bible, he exhibits the lack of faith. He exhibits the absence of faith. In fact, at one time, he gets into this, he's crossed, he doesn't know where he's going, God's leading him, he gets to this place, and there's a big king and a big kingdom in this place. And apparently Abraham's wife was a hottie, and so he said to himself, oh no, the king's going to kill me to take my wife, so I'll just lie and say, oh, she's my sister. And then the king says, well, then can I have her? And Abraham's like, uh, oh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> and he gives his wife away. Can you imagine the look that he got from her? What are you doing? And he gave his wife to this king, and then, and then God started to curse that king and that kingdom, and the king says, what's going on? And he found out that she is his wife. She's married, and so he gives her back to Abraham and says, why would you do that to me? Why would you put me in that position? Why would you do that to your wife? What is wrong with you? Get out of my country. <laughs> and so Abraham and his wife are leaving. How many of you women in this room would, would have been given Abraham the cold shoulder for a couple of months at that point? Yeah. So here they are walking along. When she finally starts to talk to him, I'm assuming she's going to say, don't you ever <laughs> do that again. Can I tell you this? He does it again. He does it two times. He gives his wife away. I guess he's a bigger, meaner king. He was even more afraid. So here's God saying, I promise you, you've trust me. Go where I'm telling you to go. I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. And Abraham didn't trust God. He was afraid for his own life. So he gave us, he pimped his wife out to two kings. Not a very good guy. Not only that, but God then promises him, you and Sarah are going to have a child. They were very old, like older than 40. And they were, they were, they were going to have... <laughs> <laughs> they were, they were, <laughs> I'm sorry, they were very old. Don't throw things at me. <laughs> 
they were very old and barren. They couldn't have children. And they even laughed at God. And God says, you're going to have a child. So Abraham, because God's not working according to his timing, God's not working fast enough. And I would agree with Abraham. God didn't work fast enough. Abraham figures, I'll fix this. I'll sleep with my maidservant. I'll sleep with my slave girl. And then I'll get her pregnant, and then that's how I'll have. And as you know, she gives birth to a son named Ishmael. And if you know anything about biblical history, this is just bad news forever for us. Bad news. He did not exhibit faith. He exhibited the lack of faith. By the way, from Abraham comes Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. He's a big guy. And though the Bible teaches us, he tells us a lot about faith. He also exhibits frequently a lack of faith. How many of you can relate to him? not really trusting God, not really tired of waiting on God. You know what? God's not got this. I'm going to get it. I've done it so many times in my life. God, you ain't got it. I'm going to fix it. I'll figure it out. And I always regret that. Well, then it says, and Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac was the father of Jacob. So Abraham finally did have a son. His name was Isaac. And then Isaac later grew up and he had a son named Jacob. He actually had two sons. It's Jacob and Esau. But did you notice Matthew doesn't say anything about poor old Esau? Esau's actually the firstborn. He's the one who's supposed to make it to this list, but he doesn't. The Bible seems to always say that Jacob God loved, but Esau God hated. Why is that? I'll be honest with you, I have no idea why, because Jacob was the most manipulative, manipulative? He was the most manipulative, evil, lying, thieving, stealing, manipulative. (laughs) And in my opinion, he gets the worst father of the world year award. I mean, he's the worst father of the year in the world, in the Bible, forever, for all times. He's the father, worst father of the year forever. He's the worst father. You know him. He has 12 sons. One of them is Joseph. He plays favoritism to Joseph, gives him a coat, you know, gets thrown in a pit. You've maybe heard that story before. Or he played favoritism with his two wives. Let me, t- let me just tell you the story. Jacob tricks his brother Esau into giving him the birthright, the firstborn birthright. He says, I'll give you this cup of stew, give this cup of soup if you give me your birthright. And Esau's like, okay, whatever. It's just a birthright and I just want some stew. And, and, but then what Jacob ends up doing is he dresses up like his brother. He sneaks into his dad's tent who's blind and he tricks his dad into giving him the birthright, making him think that he's Esau. So now he gets this blessing. And then when, when Esau finds out about it, Esau's a big hunting, burly man. He wants to kill Jacob. And so Jacob runs for his life. And Jacob's always running for his life in the whole Bible. He's running. He's a runner. And he runs to this place and he finds this other father, this other man. And he also begins to manipulate and trick and steal from him. He's stealing his sheep slowly. And, and I don't know how he does it. Something with spotted and speckled and slatted lambs. And he, gets, he steals all these sheep. And then he ends up marrying both of his daughters, Rachel and Leah. And then he convinces his daughters to start stealing from their dad, and they steal this gold and these idols. Next thing you know, their dad's mad, and now Jacob and Leah and Rachel are running again. (laughs) Now he's got two wives and a house full of kids, and he's still on the run, running from another man. And while he's running, he gets to the kind of like the bottom of his rope, if you will, and he, 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 he comes to this place where he's about to die, and then the angel of the Lord shows up. The angel of God, the Bible says, and they wrestle. God's a wrestler. (laughs) And God wrestles with Jacob, and he changes his name from Jacob to, get this, Israel. This most manipulative, stealing, thieving, bad father of a man gets the name Israel. That's the foundation of our faith. 
kind of messed up, isn't it? Then he continued to have more sons. Let's read about him. Jacob, the lying, stealing, thieving, manipulating man, has a son, a father named Judah. He actually has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Jacob, I mean the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And the first, the oldest son was Judah. And Judah has a couple of boys too. He has a boy named um, Er, E-R, which is not listed here, and a, and a son named Onan. Fun names, aren't they? Let me tell you about Judah's oldest son, Er, E-R, not U-R, E-R. Er marries a pagan woman, Babylonian. You're not supposed to do this if you're a Jew. Don't marry pagan women. He marries a pagan woman by the name of Tamar. And Ur and Tamar are married. The family kind of is like, Ugh, you're not supposed to marry foreign, foreign women. He dies. And when he dies, the Jewish law, the Jewish custom is the next of kin, the next brother is supposed to take that woman and marry her and, take her and give her children so that his brother wouldn't die in vain. See, they didn't have life insurance back then. <laughs> and so if, if, you're, if, you're, if your man died, then the family would take care of each other. We're going to take care of this woman. We're a family. We take care of each other. So Ur's closest of kin, his brother, his name is Onan. Onan was supposed to take Tamar as his wife. So Onan took Tamar, he slept with her, but then he kicked her out and said, I'm not going to take you as my wife. This happened to several brothers. Lots of these brothers would not take Tamar as his wife. And Tamar finally goes to Judah, the grandpa, the father-in-law, and says, you have to do something. You have to get one of your brothers to take me. I can't be living out here all by myself. Mm -hmm. And Judah says, no. So you know what Tamar does? Tamar dresses up like a prostitute. And she waits outside of town. And Judah, that's her father-in-law, comes by. She flashes a little leg. I don't know what she does. Rings a bell. (laughs) <laughs> you know, holds out a plate of steak. I don't, know what, I don't know what prostitutes back then did, but she does something, and Tamar tricks him into coming into her hotel room, and bada-bing, bada-boom, she gets pregnated, and now she's got a baby with her father-in-law. Uh, that's like her, he's like, a, he's like a baby daddy or baby grandpa, you know? <laughs> it's kind of messed up. And, and here's what Matthew says. Matthew says, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerar by Tamar. So Judah has all these sons. Some of them aren't listed. One of them is Perez. And then also, Matthew wants us to not miss, don't forget Zerar, the son that came from someone else's, his son's wife named Tamar. You see how, you think your family was messed up. This is messed up. I like the way one pastor said, you can see the southern roots, you know, kind of coming through the Bible here. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) So he has a bunch of of kids too. The father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Omanamadabadab, the father of Mahashanan, the Mahashanan the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And so again, here's someone from outside, someone who's not a Jew, but but Matthew wants to see that Boaz came into being by this woman named Rahab. Can I tell you about Rahab? Rahab was a pagan Canaanite lying prostitute. She lived in a place called Canaan. If you know anything about Canaan, it's the promised land that God was going to promise the Israelites. So the Israelites were in, you know, Egypt. They came out of Egypt. They're wandering through the wilderness. Eventually, God says, you're going to take that land called Canaan. It's the promised land. And before they take it, it's this big, high-walled city. They send in some spies to the city. And the spies are running around, and, and, you know, like every good spy movie, they end up getting caught, and they're running, and they're running from the bad guys, and they just jump into her house. She's a prostitute. The door's always open. And so they jump into her house, and she gets in, they get in there, and she's like, oh, no. And he's like, look, 
we're going to come back and we're going to take this land. And if you give us up, you're, you're going to die anyway. If you don't give us up, we'll save you. We'll, we'll, we'll give you a part in our, in, our, in our place. Can I just tell you something else about Rahab? Her name literally means pride, insolence, and savagery. <laughs> Rahab, the lying prostitute Canaanite, her name literally means pride, insolence, and savagery. Savagery. Don't name your daughter Rahab, okay, Jeremy? <laughs> I wouldn't. I mean, I mean, maybe you want to, but I would not name my daughter Rahab. And so what ends up happening is she lies to her own people. She becomes a traitor to her own people. She's going to go ahead and add that to her resume. Liar, traitor, prostitute. And then whenever God destroys Canaan, she gets saved. Bible actually puts her in the faith hall of fame. If you've never read Hebrews chapter 11, all these great people of the faith, Rahab is in there. I want to be in that list. Why does the lying, savage, Canaanite prostitute get to be in there? It's just amazing. Jesus has got a messed up family. And Matthew doesn't want to hide it. He wants to talk about it. He wants to unpack some of this baggage. Next, it says, Boaz was the father of Ruth. I could talk about her. I could talk about all these people. I mean, there's so many good people. Let me just skip Ruth real quick and, and get on down here for the sake of time. Father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David, the king. David is my all-time favorite character in the Bible. I did a whole year study on his life when I was 22. I sinned more in that year than I did in my whole life. I tell you the truth. Because as I'm studying David's life and I realize that David was a man after God's own heart and he sinned all the time, then that means I can sin. <laughs> it was a bad year. Good year, in some respect. <laughs> David gets the title, the man after God's own heart. You know, he's my favorite character, and it almost sounds like it's God's favorite character, if God plays favorites, because he's the only person who gets the name, the man after God's own heart. Every young boy wants to be a man after God's own heart. Well, David did have a, have a heart after God, but he also had a heart after another man's woman. One day he was sitting, I don't know where he was sitting. It doesn't say where he was sitting, but somehow he saw a woman taking a bath on the roof of her house. Don't ask me. Don't ask me how this happens. Her name just happens to be Bathsheba. How, how ironic is that? He sees her taking a bath on the roof of her house, and so he invites her over for dinner. Bada bing, bada boom, one thing led to another. She gets, again, impregnated. And so, meanwhile, her husband, yep, that's right, she's got a husband. Her husband is fighting a war for David. And so he calls out for him, says, bring Uriah. That's his name. Bring Uriah home. He, he figures, I've got to do something. What's going to happen if Uriah comes home and his wife is pregnant? <laughs> it's not going to look good. So he brings her home and he gets him drunk. He brings, excuse me, he brings him home and gets him drunk and says, now go and sleep with your beautiful wife who likes to take baths. <laughs> and he says, no, I'm not going to go sleep with my wife. No, I'm not even going to go sleep in my bed. I'm not even going to sleep in my house, for I will sleep on the porch of my house. Because how can I sleep in a warm house with my warm, bathed wife when my comrades are out fighting in the cold? And David says, oh, this man is just too good. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be? So David says, fine, I'll send you back to the war. And he gives him an envelope. It's a sealed envelope. And inside that envelope has Uriah's death sentence. The letter just essentially says to his commanding officer, put Uriah somewhere in battle, stage something so that he'll die because he can't come back. And so the man after God's own heart, the little boy who slew the giant, 
the man who wrote most of the psalms that we have today, the songs that we sing in worship, David wrote. The man who architected and almost built the temple of God, that man was a liar, was an adulterer, was a murderer. Jesus has got a messed up family. You thought you had a messed up family. Jesus has a messed up family. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So see, again, Matthew wants to kind of highlight the bad stuff. David had all kinds of children that aren't listed here. The only one that is listed is Solomon, who happened to have, have a different mother, a mother of a man who was married, a woman who was married to another man named Uriah. And then Solomon had a bunch of children too. He was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abujajah, Abujajah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, that's a cool name, Jehoshaphat, Jeho- Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat. We can name one of our kids that, Jehoshaphat. <laughs> father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah. Oh, I like Uzziah. His name sounds like Uzi, doesn't it? He actually, Uzziah actually invented the catapult. Did you know that? He was the most military king in the world. I mean, he's, he's got all kinds of cool stuff. Uzziah, that's how you remember it. Uzziah, Uzziah, where was I? Achim, Achim, the father of Eliad. I've skipped all these other Zodaks, Azores. That's a cool name. Methan, Methan, the father of, I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of, look at that one, Josiah. I have to kind of mention him because we named our firstborn after him, Josiah. So, so you see there's this long list of kings. David had a son named Solomon, Solomon had a son named, and it goes on and on and on and on. In fact, there's four books in the Bible dedicated to all those kings, second, first, second kings, first, second chronicles. You can read that, those stories, but I'm not going to have time to tell you about all those kings. But if I did, you would know, since they come from the same Bible that I've been talking about all night, that their families are jacked up, and they do some pretty messed up stuff. They're sinners. And then we get to just this, I just want to tell you real quick about Josiah. It says that in the book of Chronicles that Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And the Bible says that he did what was right in God's eyes, and he walked in his father David's footsteps, and he did not turn to the left or to the right. Now, just real quickly, David was not his father. David was his great, 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 12 great fathers. He was his great, 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 great grandfather. And so all of those fathers were bad guys. David, he did sin. He sinned a lot, but he did have a heart for God. And so he led his people to worship God and he built the temple and he was always leading. He was a, he was a sinner, but he still loved God and he, and he pushed people towards God. But once David died and Solomon died, all those other kings did the exact opposite. Instead of pushing people towards God, they pushed people away from God. They, they led people to worship idols and to do other bad things. And so when Josiah becomes king, he's eight years old. And his father was like the worst he, just, he, he, he put up all these altars to all these idols. He was bad. And his father's father, his grandfather, was worse. Bad dads. It says that Josiah, at, at, at eight years old, became king. A few years later, like about 10 years old, he begins to tear down all the idols. He just cuts them down. The Bible's pretty explicit. He doesn't just cut them down. He grinds them into powder. Not dust, powder. That's pretty darn grinded, you know? And I'm wondering, how do you grind something into powder <laughs> back then. I don't even know how you do it today. <laughs> you, what tool do you have to grind a piece of wood into powder? <laughs> I have no idea. He didn't burn them. He grinded them. That's what the Bible says. He grinded them into powder. He grinded the idol's potum 
poles, totem poles, whatever. He grinded them into powder, and then he sprinkled the powder on the worshipers of those idols' graves. He was mad. And then at one point, he wanted to remodel the temple. Obviously, since they weren't worshiping God, the temple had cobwebs in it. You know, the sheetrock was starting to crack. And so he says, let's remodel the temple, and let's start cleaning it up. And while they're cleaning it up, they find this strange book inside this strange box. And so one of the soldiers grabbed this book and brings it to Josiah, and it was the word of God. It was Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. He had never read it. He had never heard it. He didn't know. Why was he following after God? He never heard about God. He never heard the Bible. How many kids grow up today don't have a Bible? Well, he, he got this Bible, and, 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 and the Bible says he read it from cover to cover, or it was read to him. Uh, maybe he wasn't even old enough to read yet. <laughs> it was read to him, and as soon as he hears it, he jumps up, he rips off his clothes, and he falls on the ground, and he throws dust on his face and says, oh my goodness, no wonder God is so mad at us. And he has this, this revival. He calls everybody to his porch. Everybody in town has come to his porch, and he stands there, and he makes someone read it to all of them. <laughs> he, they read the whole Bible to the people. Can you imagine? You thought church was boring, right? <laughs> Here, Josiah has some servant who's reading Leviticus <laughs> to all the people who were standing out in the hot sun. And I just kind of imagine it like this. After the Bible's read, Josiah gets up and says, I, King Josiah, am going to commit to following all of these rules, and I want you to commit with me. So here I'm going to say it. I, Josiah, will commit to these rules. Now you say it with me. I will commit to these rules. And he goes through all of them and makes them commit to it. Josiah was a great king. In fact, Jeremiah writes a lament, which is a very sad song about Josiah's death. When Josiah died, Jeremiah wrote a sad song. And in that song, it says, there has never been and there shall never be a king like Josiah. He was a good guy. But like all young men, he had flaws. Like all old men, he had flaws. <laughs> he, he was a good king, but like most young men, he didn't listen very well. <laughs> he didn't listen to wise counsel, and someone gave him some wise counsel. He didn't listen. He went into a battle he shouldn't have gone into, and he, and he died young too, which is why Jeremiah wrote the lament. I wish I had time to tell you about all these people. I mean, we could talk about um, the deportation of Babylon. We could talk about Jehokaniah. We could talk about Zerubbabel. We could talk about Zadok or Zadok. We could talk about Eliezer. We can even talk about Joseph and Mary. If I had time, I could tell you about all these people. Some of them I know nothing about, actually, so I couldn't tell you about them. But, but, but most of them, the Bible is pretty explicit. And then we get to this part here, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now, if I was Matthew, I would want to hide most of these names, but Matthew does not. In fact, Matthew almost seems to elevate them. He doesn't tell us about Esau. He tells us about Jacob, and he doesn't tell us about Onan. He tells us about Tamar, and he tells us about Solomon, who was born from Uriah's wife. <laughs> he's purposely telling us. He's, he's, not, he's not sweeping it under the rug. He's airing out some dirty laundry here. If you're going to start a gospel, a good news about who Jesus is, why would you start with a family tree that is jacked up? You want to give Jesus some credit. You want to give Jesus a leg to stand on. So why does Matthew do that? Well, I think it might be obvious, don't you? Because I think Matthew wants you to know, and I think that God wants you to know, and I want you to know that you're going to fit in just fine in this family. 
you're going to fit in just fine. Because you probably look a lot like David. You probably look a lot like Tamar. You probably look a lot like Abraham and lack faith and try to get things done on your own timing. You see, our God is not the kind of God who's looking out for people or, or searching for people who are perfect or who are trying to be perfect or who are trying harder than everybody else. Our God seems to be looking out and reaching out to people who are vagabonds and misfits and liars and thieves and murderers and prostitutes and ragamuffins. And God's not searching for the perfect. He's searching for the imperfect. God adopts these kinds of people into his family. Rahab, Tamar, Abraham, they were not Jews. They're, they're foreigners, and God adopts them into the family and says, these are the kinds of people I like to adopt. I like to adopt people who need a savior. I like to adopt people who need saving. And I think that you're going to fit in just fine because you're a part of God's family, or at least you could be. You could be a part of God's family. He's inviting you. He wants to adopt you. Amen? And I bet you're just like me. I bet you're just like David. I bet you're just like Tamar, Jacob. I bet you've got so many embarrassing things that you don't want your family to know about. You don't want your church family to talk about. I bet you got some deep, dark secrets, things that you're hiding. I bet you're just like me. <laughs> in fact, I'm willing to gamble that all of you in this room have got some laundry that you are wishing you could burn. Sometimes you wake up at 2 in the morning and you're thinking, oh, no, it's going to come out to get me. Someone, skeletons are coming out of the closet eventually. But isn't it good news that Matthew begins his gospel by saying, look at all this dirty laundry. Look at all these skeletons in the closet. Jesus has knots in his family tree. This is the beginning of the good news. Now, I, I wanted to share, I wanted to close with just one thing. Uh, the other night, um, well, I'll start by saying this. One of my favorite new books is a book that I can read. It's on my level. It's called the, the Children's Storybook Bible. <laughs> I love it. It's awesome, isn't it? It is. The pictures are good. The storyline is even better. If, when I first became a father, I started reading children's books, and I wanted to burn them all to hell um, because they're horrible. I mean, you know, like, oh, here's, here's Daniel. He jumps into a lion's den, and the lions don't have any fangs, you know. The lions are, like, cuddly, and here's Daniel petting them. <laughs> David kills the giant instantly. You know what I mean? He throws a stone, boom, giant falls. But that's not how the story goes, right? He runs up there, takes off. That's not what killed the Goliath, he takes a sword and cuts his head off and then takes it back and sleeps with it in his tent. I mean, come on. He did do that. Oh it's craziness. That doesn't ever, ever make it to the children's storybook Bible, you know? <laughs> so, so I'm lying in bed with Jonathan and Josiah. And they, they make us lay with him for eight hours before they go to bed at night. <laughs> I'm lying in bed with Jonathan, and my wife, she puts on the Storybook Bible CD. It comes with a CD, so, so you can just read. If you don't know how to read, you can just listen to it. It's good for all of us. And, and, and the narrator has a British accent, so it's just so charming. And, and, and as he was reading, um, I was sitting there next to Jonathan, and I started crying. And he's like, what's wrong, Daddy? And I'm like, I have no idea. 
later on I started thinking about it. It's like, why was I crying? Was it the British accent? <laughs> was I just really tired? I, I, I decided that it must mean that I'm actually saved. You know, because why else would I cry? Sometimes I wonder, you know, am I saved? I think I must be because I cried. Let me just read this to you. I want to just end with this. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you <laughs> or what you should be doing. It's about God and what he's already done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. Well, the Bible does have some heroes in it, that's true. But as you'll soon find out, or as we found out tonight, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. In fact, they make some pretty big mistakes, and sometimes even on purpose. And they get afraid and they run, and sometimes they get angry and downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who came from a faraway country to win back his lost treasure. <laughs> it's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, his everything to rescue the ones that he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has actually come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it really is true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all of the stories are telling one big story, and the story is of how God loves his children, and he comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell the story, and at the center of the story is a baby. Every story in the Bible, the story about David, the story about Abraham, the story about Tamar, the story about Rahab, every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like this missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And when they all fit together, suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. All these people are a part of the family. And they're all messed up, but they all come together on Christ. And when we look back, we see a beautiful picture. You and I are in that family. And you're messed up and I'm messed up, but we love each other. We, we, we will talk about our baggage and we'll pray with each other and we'll wrestle with each other and we'll be in a community together and we'll sacrifice for one another and we'll give and we'll share and we'll serve. And in the end, it's because God loves us, vagabonds, misfits, liars, runners, and he adopts us into his family, amen? So if you're here tonight and you've not yet been adopted into that family, can I just invite you one more time? You're going to fit in just fine, just fine. In fact, you might actually look a lot better than me. You might look a lot better than David. You're going to fit in. So come, Jesus says, welcome to my family. I want to adopt you. This Christmas, that's what you need to know the story's about. Jesus came to adopt you into his family, and his family has lots of knots in it, and you can be one of them.